13, the parable that Jesus tells of the rich fool. Luke 12, 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this, I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of God. All right. Hello, everyone. How are you all? Good. Good stuff. Um, good to be here. Um, love visiting 4 p.m. It's good. It feels, it's dark. It's, 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 um, it feels a bit moody, you know. Everyone's had lunch and, uh, you know, full of energy, ready for the evening. It's good. Um, yes. Uh, very, very, um, very stoked to be able to bring the word to you guys um, this evening. Um, I, um, I was talking to my daughter this morning before um, leaving the house for 11 a.m. Anyway, and, I, and she, um, I think Kira might have spoken to her first. Anyway, she comes up to me. She said, oh, Daddy, you're, you're talking at church today. I said, yes, yes, I am, I am talking at church today. And she said, oh, are you, are you talking with a microphone through the speakers? I was like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. And she said, why? I said, oh, Jez and Gav asked me to speak. And she said, is that because you haven't had a turn yet? <laughs> Which is very, very kind of her looking out for me. So if you haven't had your turn yet, just go hit up Jez and Gav or maybe go chat to Clover, the three-year-old going to bat for you. Um, but yeah, very stoked to be able to be here to preach. Um, thanks hugely to, to Gav and Jez for giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, if I can tell just another story about school camp before I begin... Um, this is what actually happened. I could, I could just go all night with camp stories anyway. There's some real gross ones too. Um, but um, 2010 um, was my first experience with, with school camp. I was taking year 10 uh, down to the Snowy Mountains. Anyway, so it's a six, seven hour drive down to the Snowies. Um, I had never done school camp before. Obviously talking with the kids, I know that a lot of kids just, they hate it. They really don't like going. It's a long time. It's, it's not easy. Anyway, so we, we arrived down at the Snowies and it's it's bucketing with rain, absolutely pelting down, and we're about to kind of get off the bus, grab our packs, and start camping for our uh, first campsite for the evening. And um, I, di- I didn't really know what I was meant to be doing, to be honest. I kind of just get dropped off, and they just say, you know, away you go. And so I've kind of stood up at the front of the bus and thought, all right, I'm going to give this, you know, great pep talk, um, you know, really rally the troops before our, our first, you know, first, first evening of walking. And um, I stood up. And I kid you not, this, this year 10 boy just literally just brushed straight past me and just made a beeline off the bus. And just in full view of everyone, everyone's kind of turned and watched this guy as he's kind of walked out into the wilderness. And he's walked about 150 metres away from the bus and he's just stopped. 
And so, I'll, oh, I'm like, what, this is normal. Is this, this, maybe this is what normally happens. Anyway, so I've walked up to this kid, and I kind of, like, as I'm getting closer, I kind of see what's going on here. This kid is just bawling his eyes out about the week ahead. He was just, he was not looking forward. He, he had a hard week. Anyway, hard for, hard for a lot of reasons. One of, the, one of the main things that I think the kids find hard is the toilet situation. Um, when you're walking around, so you, I've got a shovel, which I lend to the kids. They can dig a hole. Um, but at each campsite, and for your ten, it's a little bit different. Um, every, every second day, there's kind of a drop of food, and there's a, a metal tin, uh, which is dropped off at the campsites where you're camping at, which is where you basically set it up. That's your toilet for that night. Um, now, the other thing is, <laughs> a few faces like, that's barbaric. Um, um, anyway, at the start of the week as well, each kid gets a group of four, and they get given one roll of toilet paper, and that's theirs for the week between the four of them. And so that is guarded very, very carefully. Um, and then each, each, um, each day, the kids are like fighting over who gets to carry the toilet paper for the day, like it's, it's, it's you know, sacred paper. Um, and, and look, and, and there's many, many accounts of, of boys who have kind of gone into, you know, war against one another because a boy will come back from the toilet and it's like, you use half the roll and, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, and so, look, silly story, um, but in, in some ways, um, you know, the behavior of those boys and the way they use that toilet paper is, is very different to the way that they would use it at home, you would suspect, right? Um, their context and their situation, thinking about, you know, the other boys that they're sharing that roll of toilet paper with, very different to when they're home, at home. Yeah? Silly example, um, but... In a number of ways, um, there's lots of different situations and contexts we find ourselves in where there might have to be kind of a shift in our behaviour of the way that we, we sometimes go about things. 3rd of September 1939, anyone know what happened? 3rd of September 1939. Anyone want to have a punt? World War II, yes, thank you. Thank you, Mark. Good stuff. 3rd of September 1939, uh, two days after German troops had moved into Poland, the Australian Prime Minister at the time, a guy called Robert Menzies, made this announcement to the Australian public. He said, fellow Australians, it is my melancholy duty to inform you officially that in consequence of a persistence by Germany in her invasion of Poland, Great Britain has declared war upon her, and that as a result, Australia is also at war. Famous speech by Robert Menzies to the Australian people, um, he spoke for about 10 minutes um, about the, the last 12 months that led up to this time of Great Britain declaring war on Germany and Australia's response and joining Britain. But he finishes his speech with this. He says, before I end, may I say this to you. In the bitter months that have come, calmness, resoluteness, confidence and hard work will, re will be required as have never before been seen. This war will involve not only soldiers and sailors and airmen, but supplies, foodstuff, money. And he goes on to speak about the responsibility of every single Australian on the home front, doing what they can to support the war effort. See, Menzies made it clear to the Australian people at the time that there was this all-in approach to war, that the battle on the front lines was going to be directly impacted by the all-in approach back on Australia's homeland. So the government did all sorts of things. They fixed profit margins. There were restrictions that were placed on people in terms of how they could renovate properties and how much money could be spent on new buildings and renovations. 
Rations galore, clothing, tea, footwear, butter, sugar, all rationed. There was a reduction in holidays to reduce spending by the government. And as the war progressed, uh, the Australian production of non-military goods just dwindled and things that you could get before the wartime just couldn't get anymore. So there was this expectations that Menzies was placing on the Australian people is that they would need to make social and economic sacrifices to support the war effort. In 1941, when John Curtin, uh, one of the, I suppose, well-regarded well Australian Prime Minister, formed government, he called for even stricter austerity measures. He says this, Austerity calls for a pledge by the Australian people to strip every selfish, comfortable habit, every luxurious impulse, every act, word and de deed that retards the victory march. And John Curtin basically was saying to the Australian people that you had to adjust more and more and more as the threat of war came closer and closer and closer to Australian shore. And this makes sense, right? For the Australian people of the time, they should be doing everything they can with their goods and possessions to support the war effort, to see the big picture and do all that they can to support the war effort. So there was this call by the Australian government that their spending and their use of resources needed to reflect the situation at hand. And what we're going to see today from the passage, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, the question to ask is, have you ever considered the situation at hand that you find yourselves in? Our life in the timeline of eternity, have you ever stopped to think about the context that we find ourselves in? Have we properly reflected on the truth revealed in the Bible that this life is short, that God rules and owns everything? And then he called us to do something with our lives and to use every part of our lives, that includes our money, to support his purposes in the world. So that's where we're going to go today. But why don't I pray to begin? Lord God, I thank you so much, um, yeah, that you have given us hope through your son, that, um, yeah, you came and died for us, um, while we were far from you, to bring us into a relationship with you. We thank you for the hope that you've given us now through Christ, of life eternal, just as your scriptures reveal that he rose from the dead, um, we too can have the same hope. We thank you that it's all because of your son. And our Lord, I just pray that as we open your word now and as we read it, that you might help us uh, to understand what it has to say. And Lord, as we've seen through your scriptures throughout this series, um, Lord, we know that um, greed is blinding and um, our idols um, can so quickly be chased after and we can just forget you very quickly, Lord. But I hope and I ask and I pray um, to you now that you might help us to just hear your word, um, to be changed by it and to uh, live lives which might reflect the calling that we've received. We ask it for the glory of your name. Amen. Luke 12 is, is where we're going to be looking today. Um, three points uh, that we're looking at. Firstly, be on your guard. Secondly, get with the times. Thirdly, be rich towards God. So firstly, be on your guard. We're going to jump straight into Luke 12. Um, Luke was a guy who wrote a, a biography of Jesus' life. Um, he was commissioned by a guy named Theophilus um, to write an orderly account of the life of Jesus. Um, so that this guy, Theophilus, and really anyone who would read Luke's gospel could get a really clear understanding 
of who Jesus was, what he taught, what he was on about. And so we're jumping about halfway through into to Luke's account of the life of Jesus. And Luke, in, in chapter 12, has basically compiled a whole bunch of teachings um, from Jesus. And there is a, a bunch of comforts which is offered in, the, in this section of Luke, but there's also a bunch of warnings. And so this, this chapter of Luke really has a whole bunch of warnings which Jesus offers about what, what I suppose, happens if we reject the message that Jesus offers. So let's have a look. This, this, this story starting at, at sentence 13. The scene gets set for us. It says, Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So Jesus was, was widely regarded as a religious figure. Obviously, he was quite popular at this point in time. A large crowd had come uh, together to hear him speak. Um, and this person in the crowd pipes up and says, Teacher, um, and hoping for Jesus to, to sprout some authority into this situation that he's in. He says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. And um, we don't get a lot of information about the situation at hand. Um, some, some biblical scholars have thought that uh, perhaps it's, it's simply a man who has felt wronged by his brother, and so he's asking Jesus to step in to give some authority so that he can kind of get what is rightfully his. Um, some have also argued that potentially it's a brother who is trying to wrong his other brother by asking for Jesus to help him divide the inheritance in an unlawful way. Either way, it doesn't, it doesn't matter hugely. Luke doesn't really go into a lot of details. Jesus doesn't go into a lot of details either because what Jesus does here in uh, responding to this man's questions, he responds with a question of his own and he responds with a story, which is classic Jesus. And he responds with a question and a story to try and get to the heart of something more important. And so in verse 14, 15... It says this, but it say, he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? In other words, it's a civil matter. Why are you coming to me? There's people you could go talk to about that. Who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them this, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, Jesus doesn't interfere into this civil matter between these two brothers, but instead redirects their attention to what really matters. He redirects their attention to thinking about what the purpose of life actually is by saying, well, life does not consist in acquiring possessions. And I think just on face value, this is something we'd all agree to, that life is not just about gaining stuff, but, but how quickly do we all fall into this, right? Um, I spent this week, obviously, preparing this talk. It was Tuesday night, and I'd kind of, uh, I was sitting down writing some thoughts out. I'd been thinking about this passage for a couple of days, and I'd kind of um, hit a bit of a point where I was like, oh, I'm not really sure where to go here. Anyway, so I was writing, walked into the kitchen, was chatting with Kiralee, and I just started tapping our bench top. And I said to her, I was like, hey, why don't we just replace our kitchen bench top? And uh, I was looking at our um, cupboards. I mean, our kitchen is fine. You'd probably, it's nice. Um, Anyway, and I looked at our cupboards and I'm like, gosh, I wonder, like, we should just replace all the cupboards on our, on our kitchen. We really give the kitchen a new lift. And it's just like unbelievable how just in a moment um, our desires take over and the sinful nature just takes over and we can just slide straight back into this, this acquiring stuff. So Jesus, Jesus goes on to tell this story. Verse 16. And he told them, the crowd, a parable saying... The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. 
And he said this. He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So Jesus tells this story of a rich man, had plenty of land. The land produces plentifully, brings great wealth and great crops and goods. And he says, well, what do I do with now the abundance that I have? I know what I'll do. I'll I'll tear down my barns. I'll build large ones so I can sit back and say, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Be satisfied with the security that this is going to bring. And this, again, is this sort of person I think could be celebrated in our society. And on face value, looking at it, you think, you know, he's worked hard for what he's got. He has every right um, to sit back at the end of his life and, and, and sit down and relax. And I see, again, I see this in myself in, in, in some of the ways that money can be so deceptive. And we can so feel so entitled to this sense of comfort and working hard to earn money to bring this sense of comfort that seems so legitimate in our society. Which is why I think the rest of the story, what Jesus goes on to teach about, is so shocking. Verse 20. But God said to this man, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Shockingly, God calls this man a fool, not because this man is... um, doing anything intrinsically wrong by building a barn, but because he's focusing on his own comfort and his own security and he's neglecting the things of God. So the rich man is exposed as being foolish because the way that he used his wealth and his abundance expressed a fundamentally wrong attitude to life. Remember how Jesus launched into the story, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And it just took for God to take away this person's life and we saw how useless all these possessions were. The story is then followed up with teaching from Jesus about possessions and how they're to be regarded. And he makes the point that in a world where so many people are set on a quest for better living conditions and comfort to be able to sit back, relax, drink and be merry, he's encouraging his disciples to seek first God's kingdom. And I suspect here that Jesus is not encouraging his disciples just to be kind of lazy and sit back because Jesus basically says look seek first God's will and all your bodily and physical needs will be met and he's not just saying I don't think he's saying just sit back be lazy and you know all of the practical realities of life will be taken care of but he's speaking to people who are worried disciples who are saying is it actually worth it is it worth following God is it worth pursuing his kingdom and I think he's saying to each one of us be on your guard So the rich man was blinded by his wealth. He was living for the wrong times. And he used his money in in a way which was inappropriate for his context. And so if we're followers of Jesus, we need to think hard about Jesus' words as well. When he says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Which brings me to point two. Get with the times. The parable we've looked at, encourages us to consider, again, that the way we use our money and possessions must reflect our context, must reflect the situation at hand. Jesus is saying, get with the times. Think about back in World War II, if you were to have a look at um, Robert Menzies and John Curtin's uh, tax records um, and had a look at how they used their money over the course of the war. And uh, imagine if they had just hoarded and hoarded and hoarded and got 
and, and saved their money and spent it all on flashy new cars or making their you know, kitchens look a little bit nicer. Um, you'd, see that, that you'd say that would be a bit strange, right? Or imagine if you had a neighbour who you knew was just hoarding their wealth day after day after day after day and spending it all on just renovating their kitchen because they were a bit, bit over the decor. In the same way, I think this, this passage teaches us that the way we use our money must reflect the situation at hand and the times we find ourselves in. And so I think there's two things which must be obvious about the way that we use our money if we're followers of Jesus. Firstly, we must use our money to reflect that God owns everything and that he rules over everything. We've seen this throughout the series, but I think it's crucial to re-emphasize. God owns everything and rules everything. We see it clearly in the parable and the ongoing teachings of Jesus that God is in control of everything when this man lives, when he dies. And Jesus goes on to teach that God is in control of the provision not just for people, but of food for the birds, of the flowers when they rise and fall as well. Three other passages quickly to to bring to your attention. On the screen, Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Haggai 2.8 says, The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. The Bible teaches pretty clearly that everything in creation is God's. Every cent in your bank account was given to you by God. Which means, as we saw last week, that we are his stewards. And we are called to use our money and our resources as God would will in this world. And so the question is, well, what is God's will in this world? Well, Matthew 28, this, this passage gets a little bit of airtime at, at City Light because it's true. <laughs> um, Matthew 28 is, is Jesus before he leaves this earth and he's speaking to his disciples about what they're, to do ne- what they're to do next. And he says to them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So God's purpose in the world, Jesus, what he says to his disciples before he leaves, he said, now go, make disciples, tell people about me, tell people to obey everything that I've taught. And so the way that we use everything in our lives, our resources, our money, must reflect this mission of God. And I think helpfully we get three ways where we're told to direct our money and resources to reflect this truth. Firstly, it's to support our local mission, to support our pastors and our gospel workers. And I want to say up front that that's, I've, I, I work for us. This morning I said I have a job, uh, which is Jez and Gav and Jacob obviously have a job. They work for the church. But I don't, I don't obviously receive anything from City Lights. I'm not, I'm not up here um, saying this uh, because I receive anything from City Lights. Um, and, and I think as well, um, our, our pastors, I know, find this, this awkward to speak about. This is, this is God's word speaking. It's not our pastors. Whenever they speak to us about money, it's not them, it's God's word. And God's word clearly says where to support our pastors. Galatians 6.6 6 says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now Paul in, in this context has a lot of things in mind when, he's, when, he's, when he says that. But that word share, the Greek word there for share, um, is used regularly by Paul to speak about financial contributions. A couple of other passages, 1 Corinthians 9.14, 1 Timothy 5.18 are all passages which speak about the, um, the call of Christians, followers of Jesus, to support the local mission, to support the local church, to support 
those who speak the gospel and encourage and strengthen the church. So that's the first thing. Second way I think we're, we're called to direct our money and resources is towards the poor and needy. Proverbs 19.17 says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Luke 12.33 says, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Deuteronomy 15.7, Matthew 5.42, Matthew 25.40, Matthew 19.21. Plenty of passages through the New and Old Testament which speak about our call as Christians to support the poor and needy in our society. The third place where I think we are called to direct our funds is towards the spread of the gospel. And that's fulfilling that call of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And so outside our context of supporting our past, they seek to encourage and strengthen us to spread the gospel in our local context. It may be that us as a church and as individuals, we direct funds to others around the world who are also trying to fulfill the Great Commission. 2 Corinthians 8 is one example of that. Again, you see countless examples through the New Testament of Christians and churches supporting the work of Paul through prayer and financial support. And so here at City Light, if you are a member of this church and have committed to this church, uh, we basically ask that you give in two ways to support God's mission in the world, to fulfill that calling of the Scriptures. Firstly, is to support our pastors. And again, the strengthening of the church and the spread of the gospel in our context. The second way that we ask our members to give is to the poor and the needy and the spread of the gospel abroad. And there's four ways, four 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 organizations we, we give money to here at City Light. The first two, Diamond Pregnancy, which is uh, an organization set up to help women who are facing unplanned pregnancy. And the second one, Asylum Seeker Center in Newtown, which is a, an organization, um, a center set up to provide support and practical services for people seeking asylum who are living in the community. Uh, those two are, are not gospel oriented in that they're not speaking the gospel and not spreading the gospel. The next two are fulfilling our calling of the Great Commission. Graham and Sarah Edwards, um, a couple who grew up in Sydney uh, on the northern beaches, sold everything in Australia, moved with Sydney and Enzo, their two kids, to northwestern Italy, city called Trieste, to spread the gospel and spread the local church. Um, and they're, they're doing good things. Um, I, I had the, the privilege of, of going over and visiting them a couple of years ago, and I remember sitting in a room going to church with them on a Sunday and uh, there was like 20 of us and that was it. That was the Christians in Trieste. Um, and so they're doing really good stuff over there. Open Doors as well, um, an organization that works with persecuted Christians in over 70 countries around the world and I'm sure Tim would love to speak to you about the work of Open Doors after the service if you've got time. Sorry to throw that one on you, Tim. Um, and so if, if you're a member here at City Light, um, I suppose, have, have you considered the call of the Scriptures to use your resources to support God's purposes in the world? As the Scriptures clearly state, to support our gospel workers here and abroad and to support the poor and needy. And if you want more, uh, more information about these organisations or where the money goes at City Light that gets given, uh, jot it down on your white card and someone will be in touch with you. God owns everything, and he's given us all his treasure. And so he calls us to be rich towards him and use the money to support his kingdom work. 
The second truth I think that should be obvious about the way that we spend our money to reflect the situation and the times we find ourselves in, the second truth is this, is that life is pretty short and it could end in an instant. King Tutankhamun. Who knows King Tutankhamun? A couple of people who did ancient history at school. King Tutankhamun, uh, one of the most famous Egyptian pharaohs, he was around about 3,500 years ago. Um, King Tutankhamun um, was a pretty nothing pharaoh, to be honest. Um, His dad was a rogue unit. He did some crazy stuff. Uh, Tutankhamun, very ordinary. Um, He started ruling at age nine, um, which is amazing. Like, what's a nine-year-old ruling over his kingdom? Um, But but King Tutankhamun um, was most famous uh, because of his tomb. Um, The ancient Egyptians believed in the afterlife, and they basically believed that what you were buried with, you would be able to take with you into the afterlife. And so they would bury you with things, money and goods, that would help you uh, in the afterlife. And so in 1922, a guy named Howard Carter made this discovery. He walked in on Tutankhamun's tomb, basically by accident, and discovered it basically untouched. And for three and a half thousand years, all of the stuff that Tutankhamun was buried with had remained fairly untouched. Solid gold coffin, weapons, clothes, thrones, wine, over 5,000 valuable artifacts were found in Tutankhamun's tomb, right in the same place that he left them, or people left for him when he passed away. Psalm 49 says, Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. Jesus says, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So the scriptures in this story is teaching us that that our life here is pretty short. The renovations, the endless possessions cannot do anything for us when God demands our lives. And there are clearly going to be practical realities about the way that we use our money here and now. But the way we use our money has to reflect these truths. That God owns everything. Everything is given to us by by God. That this life is short. That one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And supporting gospel work is an absolute priority for doing things that last into eternity. Point three. Be rich to God. I want to bring us back to something we started the series with. At the end of the day, as we've said, our money should reflect the time that we find ourselves in. But as we said back in week one, the way we use our money also reveals and reflects the state of our hearts. And so the question here for everyone, including myself, is have you totally grasped the incomparable riches that we have in Christ? Have you understood and grasped whole of the goodness and kindness and mercy and grace that God has shown us in Christ? The story of the Bible from beginning to end teaches that every single person in this room, myself included, has taken God's stuff time after time after again and has rejected the good giver. And God says, for that decision that we've all made to take his stuff and to turn our backs on him, God says, right, you are condemned. 
you'll be without me for eternity. That's just what the scriptures say. Instead of God leaving us in that state, instead of God saying, right, you're without me for eternity, God sent his one and only son, Jesus, who he had relationship with eternally, to this earth to die in our place. That he sent Jesus to take the wrath that was rightly directed at each one of us if we would accept his substitute. And if you knew that there was someone who lived who had risked so much to save you and to save your life, surely the right response would be a joyful and willing and natural generosity. And think how much more with Christ, who didn't just risk it all but faced death for us. 2 Corinthians 8 says this, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The richness of life now with knowing God and the richness of an eternal life, knowing our God, knowing our Creator. And I don't think God is simply giving this guilt of saying, look, look what I've done for you now, you, now you do this for me. I think it's more saying, look, now respond in a way which is worthy of that calling. Now respond in a way which is appropriate for the times. If God owns everything, the time in this life is short, and his kingdom work will endure into eternity. And I think for most of us, the thing that we find tricky is if we've accepted Jesus as our saviour, uh, we find ourselves, I think, so easily just walking the same as everyone else around us. Remember back in week one, we looked at the story where Jesus says that where your treasure is, so there will your heart be also. So if your treasure is in stuff, where will your heart be? Well, obviously with those things. And so surely there is a calling to pray and to meditate on the scriptures and the hope that we have in the gospel and that let that transform our actions and ask God by his Holy Spirit that, that might transform the way that you use our stuff. But I also think the opposite is true. Well, the reverse is true. If we put our treasures in the things of God, it makes sense that our heart would follow also. A few years ago, I started giving money to the Edwardses, which is the first missionaries that I've ever started kind of supporting. Um, since doing that, uh, I read their prayer letters, I pray for them regularly, and I've never been that interested and invested in the work of missionaries. Because I think it's true that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. And so if you're feeling like you don't have a heart for God's mission, well, direct some funds there and watch your heart follow. Because we know that when we have a heart that is dedicated and set on the will of God, we're going to find true joy, knowing that we are living in step with our Creator in the way that He has called us to live. And we become a striking witness to a world around us which is so set on the here and now, when we say with our lives and our actions that there is more. Let me pray for us. Lord God, again, we just want to give you praise and thanks for the hope that you've given us in your Son. That while we were dead in our sin, that you came and you died for us. Jesus, that you bore the wrath that we deserved, that we might not have to face the wrath of God, but can joyfully look forward to eternal life and eternal hope with our Father. And so God, we just thank you for the hope that you've given us in Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you might... Help us to be people who, as we reflect on the generosity and kindness that you've shown us, that we might be eager more and more and more to be involved in your gospel work in this world.
Lord, again, we just give you thanks for the riches you've shown us and, and the riches that you've given us in Christ. And Lord, yeah, I just pray that um, even this week as we look forward to budget night, um, Father, I pray that you'll help us not to just forget the words of um, your scriptures, but that we might see this as absolute gospel priority. Maybe even to sit down with someone and to, um, and to, to go through our finances and work out where we can be supporting your gospel causes more. And Lord, we just ask this all for the sake of your name. Amen. As we do every week at City Light, um, we're going to have a couple of minutes just to reflect before we respond in song. Um, so I encourage you during this time, speak with God, um, open the scriptures, and um, we'll respond together in song in a moment.